of 1 Kings chapter 17. And we're going, I'm sorry, verse uh, chapter 18. Let's do chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, we'll go to the, uh, let's go to the 18th verse. Go to the 18th verse. Um, glad each one of you are here. And uh, Hannah, you can tell your dad that I'm, I'm, I'm preaching thoughts that, uh, that he and I were talking about. Every once in a while I'll give Brother Bart Lloyd a call. And a lot of times we talk about fishing or hunting, but every once in a while we get a little spiritual. And we were talking and he just, he, he did, all he said is he said, go, go read a while in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 18. And I, I did so. And uh, sure enough, it, God began to speak and I want to talk to you a little bit tonight. But let's, let's just start right here, 1 Kings chapter 18, let's start in ver, or chapter 18, let's start in verse 18. And he answered, this is uh, Elijah. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the grove or, or of Ashroth that, who eat at Jezebel's table. And tonight with the help of the Lord, I want to talk to you about the dangers of eating are dining at Jezebel's table, the dangers of dining at Jezebel's table. Why don't we pray that God's word would speak to us. Father, we thank you today. And Lord, we bless you. And we thank you for the worship. We thank you that we felt your presence. And Lord, I believe we positioned ourselves so that you can speak to us. And I ask right now that you would speak to every heart that's here. Ask that you would speak to everyone that is in pre that's present. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. You can be seated. I, if you'll allow me to, to give you the history and, and kind of tell you the story of Ahab and Jezebel, and then we'll get a, a little deeper into uh, the Word of God going forward from there. But there are some dangers at dining at Jezebel's table. In order to understand where we start from, you're going to have to go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 16. And uh, I'm going to read it, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I want you just to hear how, how absolutely simply put the, the, the evil of Ahab and Jezebel was. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. If you'll read First and Second Kings, go into First and Second Chronicles, it's exactly that. It's the chronicles of the kings. It tells you the history. Sometimes it's only a couple verses. Other times you get several chapters that play out the life that are there. But in all of that, it will be very clear. It will say that so-and-so, that the king of Judah, or so-and-so, the king of Israel, did what was right in the eyes of God. But you will find those few and far between. Most of the time it says, and they did what was wrong. Watch what it says of Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that's bad enough. Anybody that knows anything about uh, the, the, the children of Israel, you know that while they had momentary blips on the radar that was good, for the majority of their life it was just this slide into uh, idolatry, this slide into apostasy. Uh, they, they just, about the time you thought it couldn't get any worse, 
it did. Because watch what the Bible has to say. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's nothing new. They'd been doing that for years. But he did more than all before him. If you were doing bad and all of your ancestors did bad and they say you sinned more than everybody before you, you're a pretty bad dude. And then it says, and if it had not, or if it had been, let's do this, and if, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So even if all, I mean, you're as bad as bad can get. And if you thought that was just light, nothing. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, or the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is like a totem pole. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel. He did more to anger God than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In fact, and I preached on this, that it was in the, his days that Hale of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigeb, who according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken of by Joshua, the son of Nun, and I preached that there was a, a commandment when they, when they destroyed Jericho. There was a commandment that you were not to rebuild the walls of Jericho. God had destroyed Jericho. God had laid it down. He said, don't go rebuild it. But Ahab was so bad that his, his, those that he had rule over, those that he had influence over, followed after it. And one of the guys, one of the men, Hail, rebuilt Jericho and lost his two sons doing it. Ahab was a horrid person. Ahab did everything that, that, that God told the children of Israel not to do. Don't go whoring after other gods. Don't go and set up false gods. Don't set up idols. Don't set up totems for me. And don't marry people who are not in the tribes of, of Israel. Don't go marry these strange women because they will, they will bring you their way rather than you bring them your way. But he married Jezebel. All through that, you find that Jezebel had, in fact, uh, I was, I'd heard, I'd heard somebody put that, that what, what they thought Jezebel's name was, and it was very interesting, and it actually would have preached a pretty incredible sermon, but the more I del delved into it, the more it doesn't really say what that one theologian said, uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to, you know, go down that rabbit hole. But in doing so, I, I simply was trying to find out what does Jezebel's name mean. And, and so, you know, obviously you put that in, into your searches and, and all of that. And, and, and there was a lot of theological things that came up. But a lot of it also was just typical, what do you name your kid? Any of you that's had uh, babies, you've either went and bought the, you know, 5,000 baby name book and you look through it, or nowadays you can do it online. But I, I will tell you that it, Nobody wants to name their daughter Jezebel. I found a few people online that would, would, would kind of say, yeah, it's okay to name your, your daughter Jezebel. And somebody would say, yeah, but that's not a good connotation in the Bible. And you could tell they were very anti-Bible minded. And that's probably why they're okay naming their kid Jezebel. But Jezebel does not bring up good connotations. Jezebel reigned probably with a harder fist than her husband. 
I don't have time to go into it, but you could go look at Naboth and his vineyard and how Ahab wanted to, to get that vineyard. And, and Naboth said, no, this is a family vineyard. I can't give it to you. And Ahab goes back home and he's pouting about it. And Jezebel comes and says, I don't understand why you're pouting about this. You're the king. Go kill him for Pete's sake and then you can get the vineyard you want. She was that kind of a woman. She was the kind of woman that had pulled the ear of Ahab. Probably didn't take a lot, but pulled the ear of Ahab and got him to worship Baal, worship in the groves, these totems called Ashroths. And here in our, our reading, you find that there were 450 prophets of Baal, and there were 400 prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. And I began to think a little bit about that. That, that phrase stuck out at me. What went on at Jezebel's table? Well, one thing I'd like to show you, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to, to, to uh, skip over a little bit. You can skip over it till about uh, 1 Kings chapter 22. And, and I apologize that time doesn't allow me to flesh all of this out. I would spend uh, hours telling you the whole story. So I've just got to kind of pick and choose for a little bit. But you find a time in which uh, uh, for a couple years, Syria and Israel had been at peace. But now... The kingdom of Israel where Ahab was king and the kingdom of Judah, they, they came down. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah and he came down to Israel and he said to, to uh, uh, Judah, he said to Israel, he said, let's, let's bind together and let's go destroy Syria. I know we've been at peace for a little bit, but let's go destroy Syria. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, said to Ahab, the king of Israel, he said, but before we go, why don't you ask the Lord if we're going to win? I find it very interesting, and I want you to look with me in 1 Kings chapter 22. Look at, at verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of, Is king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. I don't think the Bible uses that number lightly. You have 400 prophets that sat around Jezebel's table and here you have 400 prophets that are going to prophesy to the king. They wanted to know. They said, look, we, we, we know that, that it is customary to ask the Lord. Is it okay for us to pursue? David did so when, when, he, when the Philistines came and, and destroyed Ziglag and took his, his family. And David went and knelt before the Lord and prayed and said, God, should I go after him? What am I going to do? And God comes back and says, this is the word of the Lord. Go pursue. They, there was an a, a understanding that you would ask the prophets. It was not that they were fortune tellers or sorcerers or anything like that. But they were men of God and you would think that the office of the prophet had a, a little bit of an understanding of, Lord, speak through me and let me tell him. But here, these 400 prophets, should we go fight Syria? 400 prophets, all of them, said absolutely. Go fight Syria. You'll win a great battle. Do it. It's going to be an awesome thing. Go do it. God loves you. We love you. It's all great. You're going to do great. Somewhere in the midst of all that, there was one prophet, Micaiah. Micaiah came and he began to speak 
he was one who spoke against it. He said, I know all these 400 other prophets have said you're going to win. But I'm telling you that Ahab, if you go and fight the king of Syria, you're going to die and your army is going to be destroyed. Oh, they laughed him to scorn. In fact, Ahab and, 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 and Jehoshaphat, they, they put him in jail. They were going to try to kill him. This one prophet that dared speak. Micaiah says, well, how about this? If you return from fighting this battle, then you'll know I was wrong. But if they carry you back on a gurney and you're dead, don't, you know, I'll just, I'll just say I told you so. Here's the thing about it. There was something that happened around Jezebel's table that was able to take 400 prophets and turn them into yes men, turn them into not really hearing from the word of the Lord, but just kind of whatever tickled the ears. They tell me that around Jezebel's table, you could eat anything you want. Around Jezebel's table, it was pomp and circumstance. It was a place of honor. You, 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 you got to kind of be around the royalty. You could eat whatever you needed. You didn't have any wants. You didn't have anything. It was all there. Gluttony reigned supreme, if you will, around Jezebel's table. Around Jezebel's table, no one told you no. Around Jezebel's table, no one told you you better not do that. Anything went. Brother uh, Hera, as you opened up our service, you were dancing all around what I want to talk about tonight. This life that we live today where anything goes and the table is spread and you can have your choosing of anything you want to choose. But there is a danger at dining at Jezebel's table. Contrast the table of Jezebel with the table of Elijah. Elijah, early in his, in his career, he had prophesied a drought that was going to come the, to the kingdom of Israel. And God told Elijah in chapter 17, he said, I want you to leave here, I want you to go and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so Elijah did, and the ravens would bring him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. I want you to think about this. I want you to listen. This is very important. Sometimes in walking with God, we look at Jezebel's table. And we have all the delicacies that you could possibly want. We have, you, you look at Jezebel's table and no one will tell you no. And it looks great and it looks awesome and, and it's there for the choosing. Meanwhile, the prophet of God is sitting alongside a brook in the middle of a drought. And the only food he gets is a couple birds that come and bring him a roll in the morning and a little slab of meat in the morning. And then later on that night, a little roll and another little slab Eating from the Lord's table is measured. Eating from the Lord's tables, there's restrictions. Eating from the Lord's table, the Lord says, I'm going to give you what will sustain you, but you may not have your heart's content, so to speak. Jezebel says, just have whatever you want. The Lord says, I'm going to give you some limits. You find it throughout it. I, I, I could take you to other places in, in Elijah's life. I could take you to uh, a little bit later where, where he was starving to death and had to go beg a, a, a cake or a piece of bread uh, uh, from a, a, a widow woman who was making her very last and they were going to, to die after that cruise of oil or jar of flour was spent. 
eating at the Lord's table sometimes looks vastly different from eating at Jezebel's table. But eating at Jezebel's table dulls you from the things of the Lord. Eating at Jezebel's table causes you to find your heart where, where God can't speak to you anymore. You'll tickle the ears maybe. But Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they, they did exactly what the prophet of God said don't do. They went to battle. And Ahab said, I know what I'm going to do. Ahab said, I'm going to disguise myself. They won't even know that I'm king. That way they won't you know, aim at me. Ahab gets in that chariot and he's disguised. And the Bible says on a chance, an archer drew his bow and let an arrow go. He wasn't even hardly aiming. And that arrow found itself through the reins of that, that chariot caught Ahab. And Ahab stood there and bled to death in his chariot. And when they washed his chariot out at the pool of Siloam later, the dogs licked up his blood and people bathed in the water that was, that was going out. Jezebel's table is a bad place to be. Jezebel's table is a place where you feed yourself, but your soul never gets fed. It would, it, if all I had was that one verse, I guess you could say, Pastor, you're stretching a bit. But could I bring it to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, when Paul said, Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers of me and mark them which walk as you have done and you have us for an example. For as many walk, whom I've told you often, and I tell you even now, weeping, that they are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Watch this. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change this vile body, and it may be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Paul said you've got to be careful of those whose God is their belly. I'm going to ask you today, who do you worship? Exodus 23 says, you must have no other God but me. That's the New Living Translation. The Ten Commandments is a powerful piece of theology, but I think sometimes we take the Ten Commandments and we reduce it down to just being something that you hear about in Sunday school, but can I tell you that that, that commandment, have no other God but Him, it ought to be an easy one to keep. I mean, think about it. In this building, I don't need you to raise your hands, but I'm, I think I'm right. Brother Hera, I'm pretty confident nobody here has an altar to Baal in their house. I doubt you got a, an Ashrath pole, which is, for, for lack, just so you understand, it's like a totem pole. They would have carvings on it and they would worship it. It was just a, a trunk of a tree. I doubt any of us have that in our home. But there was an interesting article on Christians.org. 
it said that while most of us are not tempted to worship Baal and uh, most of us are not tempted to drink a toast to Jupiter or offer sins to Bacchus, nobody sits down and offers a lamb to Zeus. And so most would say that in modern America, idolatry really doesn't exist. If I begin to preach about idolatry, you would say, well, sure, the Hindus who worship some 30,000 plus gods and tribes of maybe more primitive people, they have idols. But in America, in Christian America, we don't have idols. So is that commandment really necessary? And I would tell you that it's absolutely necessary. Because I would tell you today that the world probably for the most part has moved on from a polytheistic world which is many gods to they've gone to one God to now they probably have no God. One writer wrote it this way. Old fashioned pagans had to choose between a chaotic universe alive with lawless gods or an ordered universe under one God and his moral law. That's what the past had to do. Go read your, 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 your Roman history or your, or your Greek mythology and you find all the chaos and the gods fought each other and they threw lightning bolts at each other or you can serve one God who had a moral law and it sounds good. But modern pagans, we have to choose, not we as like I'm atheist, but modern pagans today, they choose between a divine order of God or a simple flat, fatalistic nature of atheism. I'm here. I do whatever I want to do. When I die, it's no big deal. I just go into the ground and I become word food, worm food. But I will tell you today that while there are some atheists that make it their choice, in this world today, most of that choice is made by someone that doesn't even think about it. It's not necessarily by a clear conviction, but it's just simply by drifting. I would tell you today that there's a lot more atheists in this world than you think. In fact, I would even go so far as to tell you there's a lot of atheists that sit in Christian churches. They're people who moved from I believe in God to maybe there's a God I just don't care. And they just lose interest. They didn't try to deny God. They just lost interest to God. And so it is that you and I, we have this, this, this ability that God has given us that we have. It's interesting that nowhere in the Bible does it say this. Nowhere is there a commandment that says you should believe in God. I'm going to stop for a minute. I want you to think about that. Think of all the commandments and all the things in the Word of God. Nowhere does it say thou shalt believe in God. I mean, it tells you, you believe in God, gold star for you. Even the demons believe in God. Right? Because God created us to have an automatic uh, hunger for God. Not always do we follow it, but it's built there. And I would tell you today that, that the appetite that we ought to have for God is so perfectly pinned in Psalms chapter 42 and verse 1. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, the living God. When shall I come 
and appear before God. There needs to be a hunger in your life and my life that we decide what table we're going to pull up to, what table we're going to eat off. You've got the table of Jezebel or you've got the table of God. Psalm 63, David said, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And I want to see your power and your glory as I've seen you in your sanctuary. There has to be a hunger for God. The sons of Korah wrote this psalm in Psalms 84. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cries out for the living God. You've got to decide today what table are you going to pull up to. There was an article by Russell Moore in the Southwestern Journal of Theology. And in, in it he was talking to the Southern Baptist but I believe his message carries through all of the church today. There's a philosopher by the name of Leon Cass, and he identifies in Genesis what it means that our enemy is called a snake in Scripture. It is that he says the serpent is a mobile digestive tract that swallows its prey whole. How many of you scroll through Facebook and you find one of those cool pictures of you know, those snakes, and they got those pythons, and it can swallow a whole deer whole. Or I've watched it swallow an entire cow before, and, and I'm, I'm engrossed by that. Some of you think that's awesome. Some of you just about ready to, to run out of church because I talked about it. But it's interesting. That serpent, it's, it's one of the very few things that will literally swallow something whole. And while it goes through that long digestive tract, it, it, it's able to digest everything that's able to be digested. And then it just leaves behind just the, the stuff that can't, can't do. It is the fact that I believe today it's no accident that, that when God begins to warn people, one of the things that God warns, he says, beware that you don't follow the path of Esau who sold his inheritance for just some red stew in a bowl. Someone who said, I want to satisfy my flesh more than I want to satisfy my soul. It's the thing that happened in the garden. They satisfied their flesh by pulling that fruit down and eating of that fruit. They were eating, if you will, from Jezebel's table and they were satisfying something that touched them on the outside but left them empty on the inside. We have to be careful that we don't become as those 400 prophets of Baal that sat at Jezebel's table and their flesh was satisfied and their mind was satisfied but there was nothing inside of them and when somebody needed the voice of God to speak they couldn't have found it if it was written on the wall. It's the priority that we found in the rich man. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16 Jesus told a parable and he said, The ground of a certain rich man hath brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, What shall I do? Because I have no room to put the fruits. And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build greater barns. And there I'll put all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said that night to that man, Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then whose shall those things be which you have provided? 
He that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Let me tell you the mistakes that that rich man made. He confused his soul with his body. Because he had ample food for his soul, because his physical needs were taken care of, he said to himself, I've got everything I need. If that is not a, a epitaph for this society and world that we live in, I don't know what it is. I have enough for my body. I've got food on the table. i got money in the bank. My soul ought to be okay too. Can I tell you today that you've got to feed your soul probably more so than you ought to feed this body that you live in. The second thing this man did is he laid hold of the future and he thought he could control the future, but you can't control the future. You're only guaranteed the present right now. You can say, oh, I've got tomorrow all figured out, but you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I want you to plan for the future, absolutely, but you don't control it. The future is only secure because of God. It's not secure because what you and I can do. We have to be careful. We don't pull up to Jezebel's table and say, I've got everything my body needs. I've got everything my flesh needs, and we neglect the things for our soul. While you and I probably have never been tempted to go worship some golden calf, you've never been tempted to go dance around some Ashroth out there in the grove, but I would say there are some gods that you and I, if we're not careful, we find ourselves drawn to. The first one is the one that I would say happens more often than not, and that is we've got to be careful. We don't, get, we don't succumb to the idolatry of the God of self. If we're not careful, we'll worship ourselves more than we'll worship anybody else. In this, you're worse off than any other idolater, even though you didn't make an idol. Because I will tell you that the, the ancient idolaters, they probably had at least a small smidgen of good intent. Let me take you back to when the children of Israel made the golden calf. What they wanted to do, now it was wrong and I'm not trying to give anybody an out, but what they wanted to do is they said, we can't see God, we want to make something that represents the God we serve. It's wrong, but at least they wanted to serve God. But in today's society, in the life that you and I live, if we're not careful, we're not even trying to worship a God, we begin to worship our self. Instead of saying, speak to me, God, we start saying, listen to me, God. We worship ourselves. I preached uh, last, our Wednesday rather, preached about worshiping the Lord with all our heart, our strength, our soul, and our minds. And could it be that perhaps sometimes we flip the script and we do everything for ourselves? We do it with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and we worship the God of ourselves. And just like every other idol that's ever been, yourself makes promises it cannot keep. Yourself, your, the, the, your flesh says stuff like this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. Not, not fatalistic, but it's just saying that do whatever you want to do because you're going to live your life, and then you're going to die, and you'll just sleep forever. 
But I will tell you today that that's a, a, a promise it can't keep. Because you're going to find yourself doing exactly that. And you take your final breath and you wake up in an eternity and realize the worship that you have been given was highly missed place. The second God that we've got to be careful we don't serve is the God of security. There are those that say as long as I'm secure in my life that, then I don't need the faith that I have. And some of them say if I can just acquire all of these worldly goods I won't have to trust God anymore for my daily bread. Now don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for a paycheck and I'm thankful for a cupboard that has food. And I'm thankful for things that we have, but I don't want to have security if it causes me to forget the God that provides as I preach this morning. Everything you have is the Lord's. You didn't earn it. You can't make it. It's not because of you. But I would like to say that if you had to choose... I hope and pray that if you had to choose, I would rather give up everything that I have but get God than to have everything in this world and lose out on the things of God. It's not enough. I'm asking you today, which uh, uh, table are you going to pull up to? Are you going to pull up to the table of Jezebel that offers you your heart's content? Or are you going to pull up to the table of the Lord that says I'll provide, sometimes you got to wait a little bit. Sometimes it might be a piece of bread and a slab of meat in the morning, a piece of bread and a slab of meat in the afternoon. Somebody said the God of security is like flypaper. That flypaper to that fly smells good. It smells exactly what a fly would want to eat. In fact, I uh, again, because I, I like to see it, I saw a, a video of a Venus flytrap. How many of you know what those Venus flytraps are? Those plants that, that eat flies. Except the video I saw, a, a frog jumped in that thing and that, that Venus flytrap went around that frog and it had a pretty good lunch. I imagine that flytrap said, I want that again. But that fly lands on it. It smells exactly like it need, like the food it needs. And it lies on that and it can probably lick up for a little bit and it tastes good and it satisfies and that fly goes, I got everything I need. I should just stay right here and I would have all the food I want. And that flypaper says, you are going to stay right here for as long as you're going to be. Be careful lest your possessions possess you. Be careful that those who pursue the God of security aren't condemned, as one put it, to a perpetual and ultimate insecurity of an eternal life without God. Because one day, now the Bible uses it in a negative term, but it can be positive. One day, the Lord is going to look at you and say, tonight, your life is required. Where will you be? Which, which table are you going to pull up to? Elijah made it clear he wasn't going to pull up to Jezebel's table. It cost him something. Not everybody got to hear his message. 
Not everybody got to, 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 to he, he didn't get the golden table. He didn't get the golden silverware. He wasn't rubbing shoulders with uh, Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, every time he came to Ahab and Jezebel's, uh, he was fearful of his life. Jezebel threatened many times to kill him. It cost him something. But in the end, Elijah was transformed by that chariot of fire while Jezebel was thrown down by her servants and bounced on the ground because it matters which table you pull up to. Somebody said this, and I wish I knew who it was. Someone said that human beings are incurably religious. You're going to worship something. The greatest agnostic or atheist will worship something. Something will get their adoration, which is why, to paraphrase Joshua, choose you this day who you will serve. Whether it be the true and living God or whether it be the God of self or security or the gods of those in whose land you dwell. But Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It matters what table you sit. I've used this illustration many times in my ministry, but it means so much, and I know you may already know it, but let me just remind you about the Eskimo fisherman who every Saturday night and afternoon he would come into town and he would always bring two dogs with him. He had taught those dogs to fight on command and there wasn't a lot to do there in Alaska in the wintertime when it was dark and cold and so they would gather around and every Saturday afternoon or evening he would make those two dogs fight. People would take bets and they would bet about who, which dog would, would win. And It never seemed to, to make any sense. One day this dog would win, the next Saturday the other one would win and sometimes one would win two in a row and the other time one would win three but no one could ever quite figure it out except the, the old Eskimo fisherman. He always Finally, someone got him and said, how in the world do you, do you do this? How do you know which dog is going to win? Isn't there at least a little element of chance involved? That old man said, no. He said, because I'll starve one and I'll feed the other. And so the week leading up to it, one of the dogs don't get to eat and the other one does. And the one I feed always wins because he's stronger. In your life, there is a desire that, that, that's there. It's Romans chapter 7. Your flesh says, I want to go sit at Jezebel's table. While your soul says, I want to feast at the Lord's table. And those are going to battle. And the one you feed is the one that wins. If you feed your flesh, if you feed the, the physical, then your flesh is going to take control but if you will let yourself find your place at the master's table then every time your soul will win would you stand with me we're not going to sing it at least I don't think we are there was an old song that was in my mind and, and if I started singing it some of you would know it but it's it doesn't seem to be that that you know religious or that deep of a song but you get this this 
for this old song, come and dine. Come and dine. Can I tell you today that the table that the Lord prepares, it might not be as, as fancy, if you will. It might not have all the gold trappings. Sometimes it's just simple. Sometimes it's manna. Sometimes it's just a roll and some bread from a raven. But what the Lord feeds you will sustain you for eternity. While what Jezebel feeds you might make you full for a moment, but you'll be hungry just a little bit later. Which table are you going to sit? I wonder if you could just close your eyes. I've given you things to think about. I've given you things to examine in your heart. And I wonder right now if you just begin to let your, your spirit, your soul cry out to God. If you found yourself going up to Jezebel's table a little too often, this is your moment to slip away and put your feet under the master's table. Would you let God speak to you right now? Would you let him talk to you?